What's up, guys? It's the Blue Bloods, and we are joined by a very, very special guest today. We have 247 Sports own Josh Pay joining us today, and I just want to say thank you so much for taking your time out of your day to come on the Blue Bloods today. Absolutely, man. I'm happy to do it, and I am uh, glad to be actually talking about college football instead of, you know, like scandal or all the things that sometimes you end up talking about this time of year. So as long as we're hitting recruiting, football, you know, the good stuff, it's been a, it's been a good stretch for me so far, fingers crossed. <laughs> yeah, we will. We'll keep it on the positive level. We, I, I feel that all season content is always hard with college football. But, you know, to start off here, all our listeners know I'm an Auburn alum. I got into college football being an Auburn fan from Alabama. So I want to start here. Can you give us your thoughts on Auburn tire of Brian Harson and should and base, building off of that, should they be worried? The recruiting class a little bit lower than usual. It's 27th now after a late commit on Friday. Do you think Auburn fans should be worried? And what do you think of Auburn Tire of Harson right now? All right. So my answer here is all predicated off of just the the acceptance that Gus Malzahn was fired. Because I could frame it in the context of do I think there should have been a need to hire someone period we're not even going to go down that route okay so so Malzahn's out we got to make a hire I think that the way that search began is certainly not the way it ended and we saw a lot of adjustment there so I guess in and of itself that's a good thing because you saw things work in I guess you could say like a very a very anti-Auburn way uh, for the better Mm -hmm. not for the worse but then you know when you see the name Brian Harson, I don't think any of us even if you were dialed into the coaching search were thinking about the name Brian Harson four hours before the hire was made official. So it takes right. you a little bit off guard. That's not necessarily a bad thing. I think that Brian Harson, from a purely football standpoint, I certainly wouldn't label it a bad hire at all. I've gotten some mixed responses from inside the coaching and personnel industry as to how effectively people think he may be able to make that transition. But I think a lot of that's tied to their suspicions over whether he'll be able to adjust to the speed in the recruiting lane in the South. So when you brought him in, that was, you know, to me, a fraction of the puzzle. I had to see his staff and it's pretty obvious that he understood what his limitations immediately would be down here. He went and got a lot of Southern flavor. A lot of guys who have been around the block. There are very few, if you look at that assistant coaching staff, there are very few test runs being made when it comes to the Southern blueprint. Everyone's been here. Everyone knows it. I will say this though. I don't think there are a whole lot of grand slams on that staff. Derek Mason, as a defensive coordinator, I I think is a really, really good get for several different reasons. I mean, I'm always a believer that your staff is just stack as many former head coaches on your staff as possible. But especially with Derek Mason, I don't think anyone's ever I they've never really associated with him as being a great recruiter. But if you'll go and you'll track where he's been Vanderbilt and then prior to that Stanford, he's never had a shot to be a great recruiter because neither one of those places if Nick Saban were at Stanford or Vanderbilt would recruit at a top five level. And so for all we know, Brian Harson may have secretly hired the best recruiter on his staff as his defensive coordinator in Derek Mason remains to be seen, but that's just something I'll keep an eye on. Listen, all in all, again, if you got to hire someone, I think Auburn could have done a whole lot worse. Having said that your question was they finished in the, you know, 20 to 30 range, whichever service you want to use. I think you said we had him 27th there. And so I, Yes, you should worry about it. I mean, to just be brutally honest, no matter how long the guy's been on the job or who the head coach is there, period. Yes, you should be worried because you know who you got to beat every year. And Alabama, not even withstanding, they're on another planet right now. But you also know you are at the one place in America where you have to play Auburn, Bama, Georgia, and A&M 
no, Auburn, Bama, Georgia, LSU, and AM. There we go. You got to play right. all of them every year. And they're all there. They're fixtures in the, if not top five, top five conversation, easily top 10 conversation in recruiting. And so that doesn't mean you lose the football game. Just because you have the second most talented roster on a Saturday, it doesn't mean you lose the game. But it also does mean this. You're not just going to keep out scheming folks and you're not going to keep out game planning folks and out coaching folks. You don't do that. When, when a third of your schedule is made up of teams that right now you're guaranteed to be at a talent deficiency against, that's not a winning formula. That's what he's got to overturn. So I'm looking at this recruiting class, and two names really stick out to me. I want to kind of get your opinion on these players. The first being Demetrius Davis out of North Shore, quarterback. He's he's coming in, you know, Bo Nix is still there. They have some quarterback depth issues at times, especially after the Malik Willis transfer last year. What do you think about him? And then also Caden Bridges, safety out of McGee, Mississippi, kind of a surprise from South Alabama. He's long at 6'2". I like his speed. I like his playmaking ability. But what about these two players really stand out, even though they might be underrated because they're not, you know, top 100 players? Well, Davis, the quarterback you're talking about there, I think a lot of reason – why he didn't have more like elite offers and he wasn't probably rated inside the top 100. I think we had him in the 200 to 250 range. It was his height and he's undersized from a height standpoint. But if you look at him, I was talking to our guy, Gabe Brooks, who is the Midlands uh, recruiting region analyst. And he basically did the scouting evaluation on him for us. He said, if you look at him, he looks like a running back. And then all of a sudden you see when they take the field, oh, oh, he's playing quarterback. Okay. But really, really decorated and played, you know, obviously high level ball out in Texas and is an absolute gamer. And I think probably if you're going to, if you're going to overhaul a roster and you're going to stack it with certain characteristics early on in your tenure, those are the guys you would love to go after. You'd love to just get the best of the best. You'd love to do what Nick Saban just did. That's not realistic. Uh, with for anyone to be quite honest with you much less if you're a few weeks in on the job but if you can maintain a class full of guys that you would label gamers and guys that you know will put their face in the fan for you then I think obviously that's a good thing to have at any position but if you have it at the quarterback position then it's really good and so like I, I think the same thing about Demetrius Davis that I think about a lot of these guys and a lot of quarterbacks that we're looking at uh, really around the country southeastern conference and country in new systems, Caden Salter is one at Tennessee that's just an example of guys that are committed, uh, they, they stick with it, but a new staff comes in, and you wonder, for all we know about Brian Harson's system, quote-unquote, how good a fit is Demetrius Davis? Because everyone has predicated their, their ranking and their feel based on the previous staff that he commits to or, or he's rumored to have committed to, yada, yada, yada. Well, then a new staff comes in, and you never know. Sometimes a guy's a worse fit for the new staff. Sometimes he's a five-star fit for the new staff. And so like outside of any other position, quarterback position, obviously being the most important, I'm interested to see how a guy like Demetrius Davis, who is not a bad player. He's a four-star player. Uh, I think he was our number eight overall dual threat quarterback in America. So, I mean, played high level ball competitiveness is proven. He's got a lot of the traits that you want there. I am very interested to watch how a guy like him fits in the new system that's in place there. Right. Yeah, I'm very, very impressed with his film. I mean, he's the winningest quarterback, I believe, in Texas high school football history. But the other kid, man, I don't think a lot of our listeners really know about him. And it, if it weren't for me following recruiting for Auburn very closely, I would have never known who Caden Bridges is. I mean, he's the 150th ranked safety in the country right now. But I, I, Auburn, from everything I'm reading, thinks he has a lot of upside. What do you think Auburn saw in him, and what do you think of him as a player? 
they needed to fill out their class. Uh, he is a project player, probably a two-year before he gets on the field type player. Having said mm-hmm. that, that doesn't mean you're a bad athlete. It just means you're very unpolished. And so he's uh, 6'2", about 190. I'm looking at his player profile right now. Number one, I love the way he spells his first name. I'm a big believer <laughs> we need more Ys and first names. And so it's just it's, – it's something you have to do sometimes. you got to bite the bullet. you got to look around. If you got four more spots to fill – Let's go to the list of guys we know that we could be able to take. If you looked at his offer list, he signs with Auburn, but I mean, it's South Alabama, Central Arkansas, Florida A&M, Mississippi State. So I laugh. I'm not laughing at the kid. I'm laughing at sometimes in the past, we've seen guys like Javier Arenas, for example. I remember when uh, Javier Arenas was coming out of high school, I, I want to say his only offer was like Florida A&M. It was some school like that. And then Alabama offered him really late. And so he gets taken and he goes to, or he takes the offer and he goes to play for Mike Shula. Well, then a guy a year later named Nick Saban takes the job. And yet Javier Arenas ends up being an all-American caliber player for Alabama. And that's for the best in the business. And so it doesn't really mean anything. Like once you get on campus, you're on campus. You're no longer trying to earn your scholarship. You got that. Now you're trying to earn a starting spot. And so guys like this, man, it's really good to have them on your roster because guys like this have never gotten used to being handed things in their life. And he, he's a really good athlete. You're not going to be a bad athlete and get these offers. Sometimes that's kind of cliche to say, but he's got the physical tools or he wouldn't have a scholarship. Now what you find out is you find out about your strength and conditioning and sports science departments because you take kind of, I look at a guy like this as a lump of Play-Doh and it's up to your staff along with him being mentally bought in to shape that chunk of Play-Doh or clay if you want to, however you see fit. Is he moldable? Uh, he's a guy right now, you know, guys like him project as multi-position athletes. They haven't really been nailed down. You could put him at safety. Uh, you could see him being a possession type wide receiver. Maybe you grow him and he turns into some kind of flex tight end. You never know what he's going to be, uh, but it's the kind of guy you have to take early on in the process. This is probably not a guy that gets an offer from Auburn, let's say three years from now, but it's a necessity given the situation. Right. I, I completely agree there, especially with Auburn losing a lot on the back end of the defense. But I want to move to more of a national hire. I, I probably I've on our podcast, I voted this as the best hire of the offseason. And that's Texas getting Steve Sarkeesian from Alabama. Can you talk a bit about why this hire was just it almost to me seems like a perfect fit with how Bajan Robinson broke out last year. They got a lot of talent coming in. And what do you think he what do you think the steps are for him to really bring Texas back on the map and get over Oklahoma in the Big 12? Well, he's got to be a leader of people. I mean, that's what he's got to be. And I, I hesitate to say what you said. If they had hired him as an offensive coordinator, he's a perfect fit. But hiring him as a head coach is a totally different thing. Now, having said that, if we're talking about the Texas offense, well, that I will agree with you on. I will have no question about the, uh, the productivity that we'll see from that side of the ball. But, you know, I, I look around the country every Saturday more and more uh, the sport has shifted to being dominated by offense. And so it's no more, or it's no longer a really novelty, unique thing to be doing what, you know, Oklahoma was doing in the big 12 well, forever, really, but, you know, seven or eight years ago, they're out there dropping offensive numbers and, and bringing in quarterbacks and winning Heisman's and sending them to the first round. Well, now to some degree, I mean, everybody's offense has upticked. And so I don't think you're going to walk into the Big 12 and, and drown everyone with offense is what I'm saying. What you can do is you can walk in if you're the right kind of man for the job and you can own the room, you can have the shoulders to call the shots, 
and you can have the shoulders and chest, if you will. Uh, that's a that's an old Les Miles uh, phrasing. <laughs> but you got to be able you got to be able to take the job by the throat, and that's something that very few people are ready to do. I don't know that Steve Sarkeesian's ready to do that. And so I'm pulling for him, certainly pulling for him. I like Steve Sarkeesian. Like he's, one of, he's one of the guys off the field that I, I'm really – I'm a fan of. I've talked to him a few times. I got to know him a little bit. Just pull for him. But that, that aside, I mean, you got to call it like you see it. It takes a big set of shoulders to walk into Texas and run the program. And if you can't do it, then you got several cooks in the kitchen like you've always had. I don't really care how good an offensive coordinator you are. I don't care how good a recruiter you are. Ultimately, the level you have to have your machine operating at to win at the highest level in this sport is such that you can't afford to have that happening. So that's going to be the big unknown, the big question. It's got nothing to do with calling plays on third and seven. It's, you know, how's your program operating on a random Tuesday afternoon in July? Right. I, I, I definitely I definitely understand where you're coming from there. And I want to shift to his previous job, Alabama. We just saw them sign the most talented, arguably the most talented class in the history of recruiting. They have everything you want and more here. Is there, how do you even explain how a staff signs something like this? And who are the big players that you're looking at from this class to be immediate contributors for the Crimson Tide? Well, being the best of all time essentially is, is how you do it. Um, having, having as close to a, a perfected model as possible is how you do it. So, the accolades you could stack on them all day. You're just you're watching the best in history, but you're not having to read about it in a history book or watch a documentary. It's happening right before your eyes, real time. So that's the A. The B, um, to be honest with you, you could go 20 different ways on that. I know immediately, I think a lot of people's eyes gravitate to the wide receiver position because of not only the talent they're losing this year in Waddle and Smith, but the guys they lost the year before. Uh, those were guys that were named Judy and Rugs. A lot of people may have heard of them. And so I, I think it's probably, if you're a casual fan, it's probably human nature to look at that situation and say, okay, good. Well, at least they'll come back down to earth a little bit. You know, there's no way that even Alabama could replace that much talent. Well, they can. And I think they did. <laughs> and not only did they go sign one or two elite wide receivers, they signed four of them in the same, they signed four of the top 10 receivers in the country in the same class, which is absolutely absurd. And to get all those guys to come in together, and I don't think a single one of them was from the state of Alabama, by the way, to get all those in the house, same class, a guy named Jojo Earl is probably my favorite, but Ja'Cory mm-hmm. Brooks is a five-star type, Aggie A. Hall's elite, uh, both those guys, the last two I mentioned are 6'3", by the way, Christian Leary, uh, every single one of those guys has number one wide receiver potential as a true freshman. So all those guys will be on the field, but I'll tell you another thing they did, they kind of flexed their offensive line recruiting muscles too. Uh, they brought in... J.C. Latham and Tommy Brockermeyer are, are two of the top five players in the country, period. And they're both offensive tackles, and they both committed to Alabama. So uh, there, are, there are so many different ways you can go. I was talking to a guy at Alabama the other night, and I, you know, I was just kind of – I like to do this sometimes for the staffs that I can. I like to reach out and just kind of go down the list and get you know 20 or 30 seconds on each player. And so you get a really, really nice, well-rounded take, an informed take on the recruiting class – and what this person did was they just they would go down the list and yeah, all the names we just mentioned, that's great, but they would just go to a guy like Terrence Ferguson, just to pull a name out of the air. Terrence Ferguson 
is one of the top 60 players in the country. He was a high four-star offensive lineman out of Peach County uh, in my home state of Georgia. He would be the highest rated player in several top 25 classes. And I don't even think he's like the top seven or eight. He may not even be a top 10 rated player in Alabama's class. And it's just, there he is. Um, Jalen Milrow is a high four-star quarterback, top 100 overall player. They got out of Texas that could be the crown jewel of a lot of classes. And yet he's just kind of thrown in there. I mean, James Brockermeyer is a high four-star, one of the top center in the country. He's not even, not only is he not the highest rated offensive lineman in Alabama's class, he's not even the highest rated offensive lineman from his own household in Alabama's class. <laughs> just to give you an idea of the depth there, because you've got a twin brother that just so happens to be rated five stars and both of them committed to Alabama. But I'll tell you the one kind of, oh, he's not off the radar, but one I haven't mentioned yet is Dallas Turner, who is a top 10 player overall. He is a five-star defensive end, uh, edge rusher type out of Florida, out of Fort Lauderdale. That is a big one. That's a guy I think will be on the field very early for them. So they, um, they have got a class like I've never seen, like we've never seen in the modern recruiting era or period. And I would also say, I don't necessarily pick them as the leader this very moment, but JT Tuamaloa is the top overall player in America. He's still out there. I think it'll be Bama or Ohio State there. And, you know, if I put in a crystal ball prediction, I wouldn't be ready to go either way right now. And that that is that's scary to hear. As an Auburn fan, that is tough to watch. But you mentioned the name that I was going to go to next. You kind of already, already talked about him a little bit, and that was JoJo Earl. We were doing a recruiting preview. I believe it was middle of last year and this kid just watching some of the films of the top players he popped off the screen for me and you know he reminds me a little bit of Rondell Moore with his speed and he's undersized he's only like five nine and a half I mean this kid I I think is going to be a stud and you've already mentioned some of the other wide receivers they got I'm so impressed with this class and then even a kid that was from my hometown I'm from Mobile I don't think he gets any shine is Deontay Lawson um, I, he's a linebacker out of Mobile Christian. I mean, this kid, I was, I called my parents down to Mobile. This kid was getting like 20 tackles a game against very good competition in Mobile. So I think this class is just absolutely stacked at, at points. But I want to move toward, we have the draft coming up. You cover all these players with recruiting. You cover them throughout the season. There's a big debate now about this quarterback class in the draft. I think Lawrence is pretty much sealed up at number one, but who would be your number two and three quarterback if you were an NFL GM and you had to make, and you needed a quarterback and you had to make that pick? Oh, number two. I know you, I know people say there's been a lot of debate and I've heard it. So there has been a lot of debate. There's no debate for me. Justin Fields would be my number two. I, I agree with the consensus on number one. And Trevor Lawrence. Now, so tell me, because I don't look at a lot of mock drafts. So before I answer, what is the general consensus out there? Or who are the names being debated for number three right now? Um, so actually, a lot of the mock drafts that I've been reading, we're getting ready to do our NFL preview now. Zach Wilson is almost a consensus number two pick. And Fields has fallen to three or four right there with Trey Lance. And Mac Jones sneaks into the four or five spot for a lot of NFL mock drafts. Okay, so I disagree with that. And um, I would be a Fields guy, number two. I have no problem with Zach Wilson being the third. Uh, that's probably the direction that I would go. I'll, I'll say this. Crazier things have happened, obviously. I'll have to see him go number two ahead of Fields to believe that. <laughs> uh, but moving on, I, I think really um, 
I, I really think 2020 with Trey Lance, it threw everything for a loop a little bit because it, when you're kind of out of sight, you're kind of out of mind in the public eye. Now, from an NFL draft scout or an evaluator or a general manager's perspective, they don't really care if you've played or not. I mean, it's it's who are you? How do you fit here? Do you have the measurables, physical tools? Are you, you a good character guy? None of that disappears because you don't play 12 games in the fall of 2020. So, you know, whatever they do in spring is whatever they do in spring. But I, I still think Trey Lance is going to end up being the guy that's in that number three, four. Like, I think Wilson Lance probably interchangeable there. And then the fifth spot's probably where I would drop Mac Jones. I think that's probably where he falls in. Right. Yeah. I, I, I think I had a mock draft today that was on NFL Network. I was watching some Super Bowl stuff. They had Justin Fields falling all the way to 15 to the New England Patriots in their mock draft today. Well, I'll tell you what. Ask the rest of the NFL with their com- <laughs> if they're comfortable with Justin Fields falling to the New England Patriots. That's a, that's a fact. I will agree with you there. I would not want to see it because I'm a Dolphins fan. I will be very upset if the Patriots get Justin Fields. I'll just note that now. But, you know, I want to look at another position. And this one, this one has really intrigued me. I know the value of the running back has decreased significantly. There's some people that said running backs don't matter at all. There's some that are saying that, De- like, Derek Henry is the only one that matters. But I'll look at this class, and coming into the season, I was very – hard-pressed to say that anybody other than Travis Etienne should go number one. But there's two guys that played in Tar Heel Blue this year, and Michael Carter and Javante Williams that just – they were my two favorite players to watch this year by far at the running back position, especially Javante Williams. And then you have Najee Harris. Do you think it is a, it should be a unanimous pick that Travis Etienne is the number one running back in the class? Or do you think Javante Williams, Najee Harris, or one of these other guys has a real argument to take that number one running back spot? I think it's laughable to consider Etienne's the number one back in this draft. Uh, if you put me in charge, it would take me about 15 seconds, and that's only to write down the name on a piece of paper. Today, <laughs> Najee Harris, ahead of every name we've just mentioned. Number right. one, he's a better between the tackles guy. And number two, you sacrifice nothing in the pass catching game to, uh, to acquire that 6'3, 220 pound frame. You watch Etienne against you know, Notre Dame the first time they played, he was a ghost between the tackles, absolute ghost. When they needed that presence against Ohio State, he was a ghost. And so in the biggest games, like a lot of people not Clemson schedule, well, they do play some big teams. The problem is you better shine when you play those big teams. And there was no factor. There was no presence between the tackles. And so if you can't do that, no one really cares that you can catch the ball because no one fears the inside running game. Najee Harris will pound out 110 yards between the tackles for you and he'll catch six balls while he's at it. Najee Harris would be the best receiver on a lot of teams that we watch, I had a, a talent evaluator type tell me they, he's one of the only guys that they would rate a five-star running back and five-star receiver. If they just wanted to line him up, if Alabama just wanted to line him up in the slot all game uh, at 6'3", 220, he would be an excellent receiving option for them. And he will seamlessly, I think, translate that to the next level. He's also a guy that really benefited from the strength and conditioning overhaul at Alabama this last offseason. What, what was supposed to be a crumbling of the wall and Scott Cochran leaving was actually a, it was a blessing, not even in disguise to a lot of people inside the program, but it's not a knock on Cochran. The guys they brought in are phenomenal. So yeah, I, I disagree wholeheartedly with the consensus out there. And I'm not going to say it would surprise me if ETN went ahead of Najee Harris or the other guys from North Carolina we mentioned. I'm telling you, I think it's short-sighted and ill-advised. 
Yeah, it's tough. I mean, especially after what you saw Najee Harris do just down the stretch. I know Devontae Smith got a lot of shine, but I don't think that Alabama team is the same without Najee Harris this year. But looking ahead to next year, I know we just had National Signing Day this week. Just looking ahead, can you give us like one or two, maybe even three recruits that we should look out for in the 2022 class? I know everyone's obsessed with Quinn Ewers out of Southlake. He's committed to Ohio State. I know there's some people pushing that Texas should get a run. I know Damani Jackson, number three recruit in the country, just committed to USC. But who are some recruits that we should look out for in 2022? Yeah, I think this one's pretty easy. I mean, you mentioned Quinn Ewers. Like, that's, to me, where we start because it's a big deal, and I always ask myself, for those of you unfamiliar, and I'll give you an excuse if you are because it's still a year away, Quinn Ewers is our top-rated overall player at 24-7 sports. He's also, obviously, the number one quarterback in the country. Uh, he's got a, a full blonde mullet, for those of you who haven't seen, uh, which <laughs> probably did a lot to entrench him as the number one player in the country. But he's, he's full-grown man. He's like 6'3", 200 pounds. I got every tool that you could possibly want at the quarterback position. He's from South Lake Carroll, but yet committed to Ohio State because of the turmoil within the Texas program. And then Sark gets hired, but yet too little too late when it comes to Quinn Ewers. And so that didn't work out very well for the Longhorns. Listen, he's a guy to watch, and they've got Kyle McCord do the Ohio State Buckeyes in this class that they just signed. So they're doing, you know, the same thing Alabama does. Georgia's been doing this, just stacking quarterbacks on top of each other. You know the reality. There, there is a very small likelihood that all those guys are going to be there four years from now. But yet, that's why you keep recruiting them. Uh, the other name, and it's, it's a little ways down the list. I think we've got him still rated in the top 10, I believe, would be Will Johnson. And he's a guy, he's a jumbo athlete. He's 6'3", around 190 pounds. Kind of compares to James Willis from this last recruiting cycle, a big jumbo safety that went to Miami. Um I'm interested to see if Michigan can keep him in state. Michigan has not done a great job of keeping defensive talent in state. They just lost Damon Payne this last cycle to Alabama, big five-star defensive lineman. And so Will Johnson is, uh, I think he's from Gross Point, and he obviously is an in-state guy. He's top 10 overall. He is a big physical presence at corner. And listen, I pull for teams like Michigan to keep their talent in state, just like I pull for Penn State to keep their talent in state. Uh, The other thing, not even to mention a general name, but the other thing I'm watching with the way that Nick Saban handled his recruiting class in 2021, you mentioned the name Deontay Lawson a second ago. Uh, He's a big time player, but what's so important about Lawson or notable at least is for a long time, he was the only verbal commit for Alabama. And so he jumped in and no one immediately followed him. And you kind of look around and you say, wait a second, COVID or no COVID, what's happening here? Well, things eventually worked out. So I talked to Nick Saban the other day about that. He said, you know, one of the misconceptions was we weren't going to be able to properly evaluate because we lost the spring evaluation period. And that's true. Even I was sitting there thinking that, not really thinking ahead. He said, that's not where it bites you so much. Where, because we already had those guys evaluated a year ahead of time. So it's not that we were crippled by not being able to evaluate in the spring where we're going to be hurt a little bit and everyone's going to be hurt is the advanced evaluations we would have had on guys for 2022, now we don't have. And so we're going to have to backload our evaluation cycles. Therefore, we may get a later look on a kid than normal. And so watch that with these big programs, see how hesitant they are to extend a solid offer. And in turn, could some second tier programs get a little more aggressive, try to get out ahead, take a, take a chance a little bit, but try and get a verbal commit before the big boys are able to offer and maybe entrench themselves with that commit and, um, you know, that could be that could be somewhat interesting and somewhat 
parity driven in the likes of which you wouldn't normally expect for the 2022 cycle. Right. Yeah. I didn't even think about that. The, looking ahead to 2022, I didn't even think about all the junior film that are visits and junior days that were lost there. That's a good point. And the last few questions I want to tailor to this upcoming season. Um, can you give us one or two freshmen, true freshmen that are coming in that we need to keep an eye on that really could make a national impact in, in the world of college football? Yeah, I, so I think the first place I'll pick up with Alabama since we were just talking about him. There is a there's an opening with Alex Leatherwood going off to the NFL at left tackle. Now they'll kick Evan Neal over to left tackle, but that right tackle spot's going to be open. And it wouldn't shock me at all if we saw J.C. Latham or Tommy Brockemeyer on the field as a true freshman. I'm really excited to see Corey Foreman, the number one overall player in the 24-7 sports composite he's a defensive end he's out of California and stayed in state finally USC locking down their top in-state player I think he'll be on the field probably very early I also think you know there are there are a lot of big time receiver talents that Ohio State has brought in having said that when you think about Emeka Egbuka who was a top 10 overall player he's out of the state of Washington our number one overall receiver in the country Signed with Ohio State, there are some people in the evaluation world who tell you he's as good as any of them, and he may break right through, cut in line, if you will, and get on the field as a true freshman. So those are some to watch. Um, I'm just kind of thinking down the list. The other guy, probably, even though I'm mentioning him, mentioning him fourth, probably the most exciting thing to watch through spring and, and going into, obviously, the lead-up to fall camp is what J.J. McCarthy is able to do at Michigan. That is a bona fide five-star quarterback. This is a place that's been a wasteland of quarterback talent, a relative term there, over the past couple of years. They've woefully underachieved. They brought in Josh Gaddis at OC, but yet he has not had the tools to work with. It's like bringing a, a five-star chef into a kitchen and, and having cereal in there. He can't do much with it. And so finally, you're giving Josh Gaddis a five-star quarterback. They also signed Xavier Worthy, a high four-star receiver out of California, Donovan Edwards, five-star running back. And so those are the types of players Josh Gaddis has not had his hands on yet. Now he does. Now I don't know how much he can do with those guys, all his true freshmen, but at the very least, the speed element from a couple of different positions, the speed element from Michigan offensively will finally be there. It may be very raw and inexperienced, and it may take some work, but they're going to have speed at least. So if you're going to screw up, at least screw up doing it fast. That's that's what I'm looking forward to at the very least from Michigan. Right, all right. And, you know, I want to look at some of the upper class. When we saw Mac Jones finally get his chance, he shined on the biggest stage. Devontae Smith was a known name, but I don't think anyone expected Devontae Smith to win the Hosman. Who Can you give us your one or two potential breakout players for this next season that might just have – been stuck on the bench, redshirted. Like, who are some of these underrated players that just haven't got a chance to shine yet? Well, I mean, I think you start at the quarterback spot with Bryce Young at Alabama. Um, I, you know, early on, I know we kind of want to forget this now, or anyone who predicted it wants to go bury their head in the sand and hope no one notices. A lot of folks thought Bryce Young had just come in and start as a true freshman over there, and he didn't. And it wasn't because he wasn't up to snuff or anything like that. Mac Jones just never let go of the job and did a really good job. And so, Bryce Young, it's going to be his job in all likelihood this upcoming fall, and he's going to have a lot of young receiver talent coming in. You've still got guys like John Mechie who are already there. Jaleel Billingsley at the tight end position is already there. I'm excited to watch what he does. Listen, who among us, or as I like to say, whomst amongst us, knows what Emory Jones is going to do as a quarterback down at Florida? 
because that was kind of a similar situation. No one thought, no one thought Kyle Trask was going to quite do what he was able to do last year. Well, now he moves on. Kyle Pitts moves on, but Eric Gilbert comes in at tight end. So you've, you've got opportunities for guys to really shine. When we saw Max Johnson take LSU into the swamp and end up beating Florida in his first real start, I'm, no one expected that. So could we see a rejuvenation of LSU's offense this upcoming year? All of these things, I mean, there are a bunch of different programs. DJ Uyangalale technically fits this description at Clemson. A lot of big-time programs have opportunities for these quarterbacks and other you know, skilled players to really step up and not just be all-American caliber players, but the programs I'm talking about there, they have a chance to actually shift division races or actually shift, in some cases, the college football playoff race. Right. And so, you know, last question. I know this is we're sitting here recording on on February 6th. We have a long time, but just taking that far look into the season, who right now would you have to put your money on as the final four teams in the college football play, playoff in, for next season? And do you think there's any dark horses that could crash the party and make their first appearance in the college football playoff? Uh, I always think there are. I, I can't even name you. I, here's what I can do. I can tell you I never start a season with any team other than Alabama power rated, number one. <laughs> I think that will continue this year. Uh, I think that Georgia will be among my top four power rated teams. Clemson will be among my top four power rated teams. Ohio State will be in there. So it'll be the usual suspects to start the year. I am not the kind of person that tries to go out on a ledge at all. I'm the same guy who picks one and two seeds in the NCAA tournament the whole way. And it's never going to be 100%. But I also don't completely torch my bracket by trying to pick a 13 seed to go to the final four. And so right. conversely, or well, I guess similarly, I don't do that with college football either. I think if Ty Thompson, true freshman quarterback to watch here, we didn't mention, if Ty Thompson were to come into Oregon and shine as a true freshman, that's your dark horse, quote unquote. But I don't really view Oregon as a dark horse. I think the only dark horse, the only kind of dark horse label that's over them is because of the conference they're in. I don't think anybody looks at Oregon and says, oh, that's a terrible team. And their only chance is to scoot in by way of a weak Pac-12 schedule. No, it's kind of, they're a pretty good team that gets weighed down by an inferior conference, but that's a team to look at. USC is a team to look at, to be honest with you. And so I guess the West Coast would naturally be where your dark horse candidates are. Oklahoma will probably have their best team under Lincoln Riley this year. And so Oklahoma, I think I've mentioned five teams so far in my top four. So we're able to cheat. We're allowed to cheat in February. I'm going to put those five teams in my top four with Oregon and USC sneaking around. And Notre Dame's always going to be there. I am very hopeful that we can get a team like Texas A&M or a team like North Carolina that is ready to ready to vault themselves into the next tier, but it's always a remains to be seen sort of deal. Right. It, it's hard. I mean, I was hoping you were going to mention mine. I really, I'm really, really high on Iowa state this year. I know Oklahoma has got their best team, but Iowa state's returning a lot of talent and I don't think enough people are giving Barisi Hall the credit he deserves just because I don't think a lot of average fans watch a lot of Iowa state football, but I, I, I think Matt Campbell's doing an excellent job out there in Ames, Iowa. No, that's my team, man. Like, I, I almost try and avoid them so as not to sound like a complete and total homer. Here's the one thing I'll caution people with, though. Uh, I think sometimes I call, it the, I call it preview magazine syndrome. Sometimes we fall into a trap of thinking that just because you bring a bunch of players back, they all automatically get 5 to 10% better in the offseason. Well, that's not Iowa State. If you've watched Iowa State, 
they are exceptional at player development. But the one mm-hmm. thing that you have to take into account is when you have several multi-year starters and then they're all coming back, you're just getting the same player you had last year. They're very close to their physical ceilings. And so if you thought Iowa State last year was good enough to compete for a playoff spot, then you will think Iowa State this upcoming year is. But just because they bring back a lot of returning starters, I don't expect the overall product on the field to be some quantum leap forward. I think a lot of times people get drunk on the returning starter stat. And for some programs, it matters a lot. If you've got a bunch of former true freshmen that are now going to be true sophomores, that's a huge deal. If you get a bunch of upperclassmen, it's not always the quantum leap forward that you expect. And so having said that, that's no knock on Iowa State. I'm just trying to inject a small dose of reality because I know what a lot of preview magazines are going to do with Iowa State. And Iowa State is not a team that belongs in the conversation to start a season with the true elites in college football. However, they're my favorite team to watch and they're my favorite team to pull for. And so I will (laughs) be thoroughly hoping I'm wrong about all that. Uh, I agree. I think you saw that a lot with Oklahoma State this year with Chuba Hubbard and Spencer Sanders and all of them. Everyone thought just because they were coming back, they were going to accelerate forward. And I think Chuba Hubbard grossly underperformed. Tylen Wallace and Spencer Sanders struggled with injuries. And I think you saw there was a time where Oklahoma State was competing and then it just kind of all fell off after that Texas game and it just kind of hit the ceiling for them. But uh, I, it's a Saturday. We're recording. I just want to say thank you so much for your time. That's a wrap on this interview. But I'm gonna give you a chance to plug everything. I'm a huge fan. Uh, I'm a huge fan of the Late Kick. I'm subscribed on the YouTube channel, so I'll let you plug all that, man, right now because it's a great show. Yeah, I appreciate it, brother. I uh, so you can find everything that we do either on the 24/7 Sports YouTube channel. That's where we do Late Kick Live, or you can subscribe to the Late Kick podcast. I would. I would recommend you do both. I certainly will not plead for you to. <laughs> and you can also follow me on Twitter at late kick Josh. And if you're doing those things, then I mean, like sting in the police once sung, you are familiar with every breath I take at that point, if that's comfortable for you. So let me, let me paraphrase. <laughs> if you want to live that kind of lifestyle, then that's what you can do. Guys. And I urge y'all to do it, man. I'm a huge fan. I watch all the time. So definitely do all that, but we appreciate you, man. We're hoping to have you on again, But, guys, for the Blue Bloods, that's it. Y'all know where to find us. We continue our ACC in 28 days theme later this week with an appearance from Reggie Mayweather from Clemson. But for right now, guys, we are out. (laughs) 